0: I think that what's happening is that sophisticated managers uh, and sophisticated executors of the states are approaching the labels now and saying, hey, we want to be compensated. If you don't want a termination notice and for us to start distributing our own works and you want to avoid a lengthy, expensive court battle, which you will probably lose, uh, we suggest that you pay us a lot of money if you want to continue to distribute our, our catalogs.
1: This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast. And yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California, where we don't get hurricanes. Uh, and my co-host, Bob Ambrosi from Massachusetts, is off today slogging through the cleanup of Hurricane Irene. And I read a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And we would like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Firm Manager from LexisNexis at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Well, there's a big battle brewing throughout the music industry, and it could be a huge game changer. It all started back in the mid-1970s when a little-noted provision of United States copyright law was passed. This copyright law revision gave many musicians and songwriters termination rights, which give them the right to reclaim ownership of their recordings after 35 years, so long as they apply for ownership at least two years in advance of the 35-year deadline. Well, that two-year time frame for the advance notice is here. The right to many songs and many mega-hits by artists like Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, The Eagles, Tom Petty will soon be up for grabs, And with billions of dollars at stake, neither the artists nor record companies are going to sit back quietly and accept this huge revenue loss. At least we expect that that's going to be the case. And we have a couple of great guests to help us explain this situation. First up, we have attorney Steve Gordon from New York City. Steve is an entertainment lawyer with over 25 years of experience in the entertainment industry as director of business affairs for Sony Music and lawyer for Atlantic and Electro Records, specializing in music music television, and video, Steve operates a music clearance service for producers and distributors of films, TV programs, documentaries, and compilations. Steve has provided legal services to major companies such as MTV, Music Choice, Time Life Films, Microsoft, leading online media companies like Pitchfork, and many independent artists, producers, managers, and entrepreneurs. Steve also serves as an expert witness in cases involving the music business and digital law. Glad to have you on the program, Steve.
0: It's great to be here.
2: And also joining us today is attorney Kenneth Abdo. Ken is vice president of the Lohman Abdo Law Firm and chair of the Entertainment Law Department. With more than 20 years of experience, Ken's practice focuses on enter- entertainment law, and his primary focus is on all music law transactions. He's known as an artist advocate and a leader within the national entertainment law community. He has served as legal counsel to many artists, which... Most recently include, among others, Johnny Lang, Michelle Branch, Garrison Keeler, Anna Natlik, Johnny Rivers, Sugarland, Austin City Limits, Owl City, Three Dog Night, and one of my favorites, Hall and Oates. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Steve. Can you give us a little bit of uh, an explanation, kind of an overview of this uh, termination rights provision?
3: Well,
0: uh, you really um, did a good job of uh, summarizing the situation. Uh, basically, the 1976 copyright act included a termination right uh, which cannot be contractually given up which allows original content creators to reclaim the copyright in their works and in regard to uh, music business this means that both songwriters and artists are entitled to recapture the rights in their songs and records even though they previously granted exclusive rights to the music publishers and record labels and today i think we're going to focus on sound recordings And I want to give the context for why this is so important, an issue now. Uh, First, the uh, 35-year duration uh, would apply to any records coming out in 1978. And then every year after that, you'd have more records that were subject to the artist's right to terminate. The reason this is so crucial is that catalog sales are one of the best, Uh, sources of income for the major labels today. Uh, As a matter of fact, in the first half of 2011, sales of catalog music, these are old records, accounted to almost 50% of all album sales and 60% of track sales by downloading. Uh, And Spotify, their top 50 albums contained many compilations of older titles, including Fleetwood Mac. Uh, 100 Hits of the 80s, The Essential uh, Journey, uh, The Essential Michael Jackson. And uh, not only do the labels continue to sell a lot of these old records, uh, because um, the demographic for these older records is an older audience that is less likely to try to download for free. So they sell a lot of records Uh, to these kinds of people who are less likely to get the music for free. But they also make a lot of money for this reason. Artists are generally unrecouped because production costs and marketing costs are deducted before the artist gets royalties. And even on these older records, and I know, as a matter of fact, because I was at Sony, Luther Vandross, will always be unrecouped because Sony advanced him a lot of advances during his career. So every time they sell a Luther Vandross album, it's pure profit. They don't have to pay the artist or the estate anything. So the impact of the artist being able to terminate these older records could have a huge negative impact on the bottom line of the major
3: labels.
2: Well, Ken, what happened before this uh, copyright revision in in nineteen seventy six, and how does it affect pre nineteen seventy eight music?
3: Well, there's a separate provision under the Copyright Act that uh, provides for uh, terminations as well, or the effective termination of pre seventy uh, eight copyrights. Uh, that that has been kind of a secondary uh, conversation next to the post seventy eights because they're the ones that are going to come up first in two thousand thirteen. But there is also pre Pre 78 days, but interesting, we didn't even have a copyright act covering sound recordings until 19. Uh, there wasn't a copyright protection of sound recordings until 1972 uh, when copying became a reality. Before that, there just wasn't much copying because we were in a vinyl uh, physical product environment back then.
2: And does this apply, does this copyright revision apply to all uh, post 78 works or is it just music?
3: Um, no, it's all it's all kinds of, of literary work. It's not uh it's not just music.
2: And Steve, what are the record companies doing about this? I mean if is this is this pitching or pitting the uh, artists against the record companies?
0: Well, it certainly is, and uh now we get into the nitty gritty. It's not as simple as filing the notice and wham, I get my copyrights back. There is uh at least one major obstacle in the way of artists trying to get their records back. And this is it. It's called work for hire. The recapture termination provisions of the Copyright Act do not apply to certain works called work for hire. If an artist entered into a work for hire agreement, he's got to demonstrate that that provision is unenforceable. And that is the huge legal issue hanging over this entire uh, area right now. Are these records work for hire or not? If they were, then the artist cannot recapture their copyrights. Now, there are legal arguments on both sides, but most experts uh, that I know who I've read agree that the labels would lose in court, and this is the reason why. Work for hire means two things under the copyright law, either you're an employee Or it was a work that was specially commissioned for a collective work like a magazine or anthology or a compilation. And if it was in writing that that work was work for hire, then you have a work that's work for hire. But in that provision of the copyright law, movies are specifically included as a type of work that would be qualified as a work-for-hire. So if I'm a director and I have a work-for-hire agreement with a movie, it's clear that I could never get my copyright back. But sound recordings is not included in the examples of collective works or compilations that that provision of the copyright law applies to. Now, here's the interesting story, inside story about this situation. In 1999, there was a staffer for a congressman who some people characterize as sneaking into a piece of legislation that had nothing to do with this issue. It was about satellite television. And in this amendment to the legislation, and it was a small, one-sentence-basically change, he inserted that sound recordings would be subject to the kind of collective work or compilation that would be deemed work for hire. Now, nobody saw this, and when the art, artist community found out about it, uh, people went to Congress, hearings were held, uh, a lot of big time artists like Don Henley testified, Cheryl Crow, and there was so much negative attention that the RIAA was forced to withdraw this amendment. And in doing so, a lot of people are going to argue, hey, They tried to make sound recordings work for hire, but they couldn't. Now, the R.A. wasn't dumb. They actually inserted in the Copyright Act special legislation that said that simply because we agree to withdraw sound recordings from the work for hire provision doesn't mean that we agree that they're work for hire. So that's in the copyright law. But as I said, bottom line, the labels would probably lose this. Uh, battle in court. So, the practical situation that's happening now is that artists are in the process of negotiating with the labels for advances or their estates against future sales of catalog uh, albums, which is a huge headache for the labels, but that's probably how me- most of these cases will be uh, dealt with by settlement.
2: Ken, what are the record companies saying, and what are they saying in particular about master recordings? I understand that there have been some record companies that have said master recordings belong to the company and belong to us in perpetuity.
3: Well, the record companies aren't saying much at all, um, and for good reason, because uh, as far as they're concerned, uh, their party line um, would be expected to be that they do own the copyright, that that for many of the reasons that uh, Steve just noted that they're they're they don't qualify for reversion and they're not going to discuss reversion until they're forced to um this is very important property to them and they don't i believe want to start talking that about about losing any of those rights uh at all uh so my experience has been there's uh, been very Limited, I mean, I mean, technically, no response uh, as far as I'm concerned regarding any you know, overt claims that there needs to be a reversion conversation uh, in advance of the actual claim termination dates. Um, I do believe that there are negotiations going on uh, to avoid such a confrontation with respect to certain uh, uh, recordings. And I've been a party to those conversations, but not with respect to the sound recordings, with respect to the songwriting copyright. Uh, but I just don't think we're going to hear much from the record companies. And uh, I haven't heard much, and I, I don't know if anyone on this call has heard much, uh, but it's been pretty quiet.
0: Although the RIA, their official position is that uh, these recordings are worth for the hire.
3: They've made that clear that That is true, which is which is to say they won't revert <laughs> exactly, yeah,
2: how does this legislation play ken with uh record contracts? I mean, a lot of artists are subject to contracts, and which one's going to win the contract or the legislation?
3: Well, I don't think that we're going to see legislation soon enough uh I think that the that process takes takes a while, and so I believe that the first official uh addressing of the issue is going to either be th- through judicial procedures, um, or maybe administrative, uh, if, if artists start registering their copyrights back in their names, and, um, record companies that they have to make some, they'd have to opine on, on whether that they would accept such a filing. Uh, so I, I don't, ultimately it may be addressed by legislation, but I, I don't think that's going to happen uh, before there's private action taken.
0: Yeah. John <laughs> Conyers, Democrat of Michigan, he has, uh, Made an announcement that there should be legislation and that it should make clear that artists have the right to recapture their works, but he hasn't introduced any uh, proposed bill so far.
2: How does the the seventy eight legislation play with the existing contracts of that say that the uh, contract the artist has assigned his copyright to the record company?
3: Um, well, uh, my position on that is that you know, irrespective of what the contract says, it's not made work for hire when in fact it's not. And um and so the contract language, uh from the artist perspective, is not debilitating, even if it meant, even if it says work for hire.
2: Steve, are the are the record companies engaging in discussions with artists right now? Are they running around saying, Okay, let's talk to everybody in our in our uh stable <laughs> and find out what they're gonna do?
3: Uh I
0: think that they're hearing from uh managers of big time acts uh like Bob Dylan. I mean, I can't talk about uh, exactly what's going on with specific cases, but uh, I think that what's happening is that sophisticated managers uh, and sophisticated executors of estates are approaching the labels now and saying, hey, we want to be compensated if you don't want a termination notice and for us to start distributing our own works, and you want to avoid a lengthy, expensive court battle, which you will probably lose, uh, we suggest that you pay us a lot of money if you want to continue to distribute our, our catalog. Now, this uh, kind of conversation has happened independent of uh, the uh, termination clause and the Copyright Act. Uh, for instance, the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, once they get to be these incredible, successful uh, mega successful artists, they're able to negotiate a lot of things in their contracts. For instance, reversion of their recordings. Uh, Because they're so powerful, they didn't even need uh, the Copyright Act for that kind of leverage. However, with uh, a lot of artists that haven't reached that incredible height of success, like perhaps the estate of Luther Vandross or people like that, um, this a provision in the Copyright Act gives them the leverage to go back to the label and say, "Look, we're not going to file notice. We're going to behave, but you've got to, you know, show us some love."
3: Yeah, I would agree that there's going to be some cherry picking. Um, uh, the companies would be wise to go to valuable catalog and strike uh, deals, renegotiate deals with those catalog authors. Um, I-, I fully expect that's happening, and it's probably only not public. Um, I went through a similar conversation on the songwriting side, uh, and it can be productive. I mean, understand that once an artist gets, an author would get their copyright back. What are they going to do with it? Um, they're going to have to find some way to distribute it, and have to work with someone to distribute it. It might be that in 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 certain cases that the authors are fine with the record company. It just they want a better deal, and uh, that because these folks are in you know, worldwide distribution and have other ways to continue to promote market and distribute uh, music. So uh, there's an incentive on the artist side, and being an artist attorney, um, I can't say categorically that it would be best for artists to uh, disconnect with their record company. It'd just be nice for them to be in a different negotiating position. And frankly, that's exactly what the intention was of uh, those that created this amendment, the Copyright Act, was to allow authors to have a second bite at the apple at a time when they might be in a different position with respect to their negotiation leverage. That is precisely the spirit behind this. And, uh, and so in that spirit, I think that it would, it would be helpful to say, look, you know, we'll take it back, but if there's a renegotiation, let's get to it.
2: And not every artist is being cooperative from what I understand and have heard that there's a, a case now brought by the former Village People frontman, Victor Willis. Uh, what can you tell us about that?
0: has a situation where he wrote a song, um, or claims to have written a song, and he's looking for a reversion, even though his publishing deal included work for higher language, which is unusual. No songwriters who enter into publishing agreements with music publishers do not sign work-for-hire agreements. They usually copyright assignments because that's the business practice, which is different than the record business, which makes termination of songs a lot more straightforward. And Ken was uh, telling me before we went on the air of how he handled a successful termination and was able to deal with the publisher because it was pretty clear that the publisher had absolutely no rights after the termination date. With record contracts, it's a different story because of the work for hire language, which has to be gotten around uh, by the artist or at least is a factor uh, in terminating.
2: Well, gentlemen, it's time for us to take a quick break. There's lots more on the battle over song rights coming up on Lawyer to Lawyer. We'll be right back after this.
4: Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the
2: most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the... IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the
5: the excitement, is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches.
4: We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack.
5: Thank you, and if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goCleo.com. That's G O C L I O.com. Has
1: the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust, our private wealth management legal specialty group, works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust Advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com slash legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC.
5: Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS-70 Type II attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit ltn.
1: Lawyer to Lawyer is celebrating its sixth year here on Legal Talk Network. That's a lot of legal talk by our great hosts, attorneys Bob Ambrosia in Massachusetts and Craig Williams in California. Thanks, Craig and Bob, for the best podcast for legal professionals and the longest continually published legal podcast anywhere. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781 551 9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too.
2: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. Our guests today are Ken Abdo from Loman Abdo and Steve Gordon from Steve Gordon Law. Let's continue our discussion on the battle over song rights. Ken, Steve, are you seeing record companies banding together to come up with a common solution to this and are artists banding together or is this a one on one negotiation?
3: Well, I was mentioned earlier the uh RIDLA has taken some positions as Basically, the trade union for the trade organization for record companies, and taking the position that uh, these copyrights are, work, are were make, works made for hire, and therefore would not qualify for reversion. So we we see that there have been certain advocacy groups that have gotten together. I've been a part of a, a think tank uh, that has been affiliated with the um, with another arm of of the of uh, organization, the Recording Academy. Um, the advocacy uh, arm of that group that uh has been exploring ways to maybe avert uh intra author disputes, uh, which is something we should talk about um because sometimes it 's not clear who the author is and to whom these rights might uh, who may have the right to terminate and who might have the the copyrights after termination um, The statute is. Not terribly instructive as to uh, what an author is or to whom an author is, so you know it 's clear I think to most of us that if you 're a the principal uh, performer that you 're going to be considered an author, but how about side musicians? What about producers and others that provide creative content or contributions um, that that controversy or that conversation only benefits uh, the record companies because the members of the artistic family have a lot of issues that need to be uh, settled before they can come to the table uh, with, with solidarity, in solidarity.
2: Ken, what advice would you give artists at this point?
3: Well, file the notices. Uh, I think that that's something that you need to do to make sure that you're in the conversation um, and, you know, go through the go through the uh, timeline and to determine when your window is to, f- to to file uh and to serve notice we we actually served the very first notice uh that's on record of the copyright office on behalf of the, the song the disco classic funky town um and that was back in 2006 and that was uh when I when I served the notice the uh, record company wasn't even quite sure what it was it was pretty early uh, but you know now everyone 's knowing because of programs like this, and so I would advise artists to go ahead and 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 serve and make those notice filings.
0: yeah, I think Ken did an excellent job of summarizing the issues with respect to who has the right to terminate. I would just add two things: uh number one, if it was a band it 's pretty clear that if those members of the band were all signed uh, to the label, that is, they weren't session musicians, that each one of them would uh, constitute an author, and all of them could terminate. But the law specifically says that in order to terminate, a majority of them have to file the notice. So if there are four guys in the group, three of them would have to agree to terminate. That's one issue. Uh, the other issue is uh, more complicated and can, again, did an excellent job of... Uh, Find this out our session musicians it was the engineer would the producer have been authors as well as the artist because that's the term of art that the copyright law uses of course the main performers uh, the teacher for performers were authors so there's no issue about that but was the producer and say it's quincy jones who really was part of the creative process would he have been an author and the answer is probably yes Now, the RIAA makes the argument that this situation can become so messy that if you don't deem these records to be worth the hire, nobody will be able to distribute the records because everybody will be arguing that they're the authors. But I don't think that's true. I think that the producers do have a good argument in many cases that they're authors. And in that case, the artist would have to deal with the producer and make a deal with the producer, before they distributed the records on their own. But I don't think that session musicians or engineers uh, were real authors. I think that they acted, in almost all cases, at the direction of uh, the artist uh, or the producer. Uh, For instance, if I came in to do a background uh, vocal on a song, Not that I would ever be asked to do that, but uh, if I were, I would be performing at the direction of the producer or the artist. So I don't think that you have a huge problem in terms of identifying the authors. I think it's mostly whether the producer is an additional author.
3: Let me add to that by saying that if you do the math, um, some primary artists or featured artists might be worst served (laughs) by raising the issue if that would raise the specter of multiple participants as authors. It could impact the ultimate compensation they receive uh, on the copyright exploitations going forward.
2: Who was the legislation really designed to protect? Is it designed to protect the main artist, the record company, or all of the producers and background vocals and sub-artists and contributors and session musicians?
3: Well, I'm just going to take the position that it was meant and precisely was enacted to protect the primary authors. Um, I think we get a little academic when we start splitting hairs. I think Steve and I agree on that one. That yeah. uh, mm-hmm. that, that that's who it was, and it wasn't intended. It wasn't intended to protect record companies. Um, or it was, uh, you know, it was to let them know that, you know, there would be a time in the future uh, after which they would have to, that the the deals would have to be reconsidered that they did with these artists.
0: It was progressive thinking on the part of Congress, and even in the old law, uh, which was, the duration was 28 years and 28 years for a total of 56 years of copyright protection. That uh, act, which went back to 1909, the second 28-year term was subject to reversion to the to protect the author because the Congress knew that in many cases, uh, artists or songwriters would make deals that were not good because they're at the beginning of their career. Uh, And then uh, after 28 years, the copyrights are really valuable, and Congress wanted to give the creators, the copyright owners, the authors, the original authors, the right to get their works back so that they could be fairly compensated uh, for their work. Instead of uh, making them live with uh, a contract that uh, was unfair because they were so young and not established, so there's uh, precedent in the copyright law. And when the new copyright law went into effect in '78, it's called the 1976 Act, uh, and the 28-year and 28-year renewal term was abolished. This is the way the Congress intended to help uh, the copyright. Uh, owners, I mean, the original authors. So it was created, this termination right was created on behalf of the original authors, uh, including, uh, artists and songwriters.
2: What about cover songs? I mean, obviously they're derivative works and you've got to get permission from the original author and songwriter to, to do a cover song, but are some cover songs sufficiently independent and different enough that they're their own work and could create a dispute between the two artists?
0: Well, I don't think that there's going to be an issue on the artist's sound recording side of it because uh, the uh, new recording is independent of the original artist's recording and the original artist doesn't have any rights with respect to cover. Uh, but it does affect the songs because the original songwriter... When he deals with the publisher on the termination and the renegotiation, he's going to argue that all this income is coming in from covers to publishers, and he should get more income than before.
2: Since this does cover more than songs, what advice would you give to uh, authors and book writers?
0: I know I retain my copyright. I just finished the third edition of my book called The Future of the Music Business, and I have maintained the uh, copyright in the book. So I'm not sure. I mean, Ken, I'd love to hear what Ken has to say on
3: this. Well, I would, I would say the same to any copyright o- owner that to which this uh, uh, act applies is to file a notice. Um, there's, there's no benefit in standing by and not being in the conversation and uh that 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 needs to be done uh the 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 copyright act is not crystal clear in all respects it requires you know like our constitution you know definitions and and it requires evolution and and it this is a convergence moment uh where all copyright owners uh need to stand up and if they don't uh they're going to be outgunned uh the other Part of this, which is really important, is that uh, back 35 years ago, uh, there would be, there was no way to predict that there was going to be this convergence of many issues in the music industry, where physical products would become secondary to what's going on in the digital space. Um, this is this has added a real interesting dimension to the conversation because in many instances, uh, certain artists are going to say. I don't think my record company is going to be able to do a better job or the one that I've been with a better job than maybe a different kind of company, a technology company, you know, a different sort of record company. Um, So with all the platforms that we see springing up right at the same time that the reversion period begins, it's really a perfect storm.
0: I think Ken raises a great point. Uh, you know, when I was at Sony in the 90s, they brought us out to the Pittman plant in New Jersey, which made the CDs for the northeast of the United States. And the plant was as big as a stadium, and it cost tens of millions of dollars uh, to build and millions of dollars to maintain. And now, more than 50% of records are sold through the Internet. And what that means is you don't need those factories. You don't need the huge warehouses and the trucks that would bring all those shiny little discs to the mom-and-pop stores and the big-box stores. You can do everything online for virtually no cost. You can use an iota or the orchard uh, to distribute your record to hundreds of online stores And there are no manufacturing costs. There are no shipping costs, etc. So an artist who reclaims his work has an opportunity to distribute his records without the help of a major label or any label at all.
2: Certainly a game changer. Well, gentlemen, we've just about reached the end of our program. It's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. So, Ken, let's start with you.
3: Well, I, I think that if you look from an artist's perspective on the economics of what's going on, and basically that's my job, is to help artists stay in the business of making uh, uh, music and, and being able to survive. Uh, make a living doing this, that the economic, the bottom line economics is it's very possible that by getting copyrights back, even if you were with a major label, even if they were doing a halfway decent job, the marginal income increases from distributing it alternatively, like Steve was talking about, might be such that you would be way money ahead by choosing to go a different route into distribution of your music going forward and creating a different kind of team around how your music is distributed, promoted, and marketed. I think this is where we're going to see a sea change in how the music business works.
2: Steve, before we get to you, let's get Ken's contact information.
3: All right. Well, I'm uh, Ken Abdo, A-B-D-O. I am in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where our mothership law office is. It's at uh, Suite 2000, 80 South 8th Street, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55402. I can be reached at Ken at l o m m e n dot com.
2: Great. Thank you very much. And Steve...
0: Before I was invited to do this show, I was actually thinking and writing about this um, issue. And uh, recently, a few days ago, I published um, a blog in Digital Music News. So if you go to digitalmusicnews.com, you can uh, look up my articles. And in fact, what I'd like to um, end today's conversation with is a blog that was posted in today's Digital Music News, which um, calculated... The damage uh, to the majors because of this issue, Uh, EMI is now for sale, as everyone knows. Now, if the catalog, which is, as we've emphasized, a big part of the asset value of a big record company like EMI, is at risk, which it is now at risk, the value of EMI on the market is going to diminish. right? And I don't think this would have happened five years ago when the issue wasn't as hot and being reported by the New York Times, et cetera, as it is now. So any potential suitor of EMI is going to say, hey, you're not as valuable as you were because your catalog may be gone. And therefore, I don't want to pay you. We don't want to pay you as much as we would have.
2: And your contact information, Steve?
0: I'm at stevegordonlaw.com. All of my information is there including information on the third edition of my book, uh, The Future of the Music Business, which I wrote for as a guide uh, for success in the music business uh, for artists, uh, music industry professionals, and entrepreneurs. Um, And the third edition, I'm happy to report, is being released this week. Uh, And so for more information, you can go to my website or to
2: Amazon. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen, very much. It's been a pleasure to have Steve Gordon from New York and Kenneth Abdo from Minnesota on with us today talking about the issue of the reversion of copyrights in the music industry. Well, remember for our listeners, you can get all CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center. You can also find Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer.
5: Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not?
4: I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center.
5: Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them?
4: It's easy. Just go to legaltalknetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to westlegaledcenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE.
1: Perfect. I'll do that right now. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. It's officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.